Welcome to Transition of Style, the podcast that explores the ways in which personal style and gender identity meets with host Phil, a.k.a. Corinne. Transition of Style is produced by Fashion Consort with music provided by Sarah FM. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Transition of Style. I'm your host, Phil, a.k.a. Corinne, and I have something very special for you today. Before we dive into this week's episode, we want to thank you, the listener, for supporting Transition of Style. Without your support, we wouldn't exist. So please tell your family and friends to listen in and subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or Stitcher. And while there, please leave us a review as it helps us to reach more listeners. If you want to donate, please visit our show page at transitionofstyle.com and look for the donate button. If you're a queer business looking to sponsor or advertise on this podcast, please do so on our contact page as we'd love to include you. And now, this week's episode. Today. We are doing a bonus episode with someone that I am a huge fan of, Milagros Phillips. Milagros is a coach, an author, a speaker, the creator of a seminar called Race Demystified. Milagros, what is going on? There is a lot going on, (laughs) at least over here, not to mention in the world. Oh my goodness. Milagros, let me just say, this is a special bonus episode of Transition of Style, and I really wanted to take a, a break from just focusing on queer stories to bring Milagros in, because Milagros is doing the thing regarding race, and I am so happy to have her on today to talk about all the things. Milagros, what a pleasure. It's an absolute pleasure for me. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm thrilled. No worries, no worries. Listen, so my guys, for those uh, who don't know, can you tell us a little bit about you and what you do? Sure, yeah. So for the past 35 years of my life, I've devoted myself to doing healing racism work, which is different from anti-racism work. I really focus on the healing aspect and looking at what does it take to heal the core essence of this thing that we call racism, which is, you know, we all know that race is a myth, but racism is real. You know, we have to deal with the reality. So I've just really have devoted the past 35 years of my life, mostly because I knew that I needed healing. I had done Mm -hmm. enough personal work in my life to realize at some point I, I became healthy enough to realize that I need healing, you know? So I was looking to heal my own patterns with racism within myself and discovered all these things like, you know, I can't heal racism because racism is not a black problem. The racism is a problem for people of color. It is not the problem of people of color. And so we have other healing that we have to do, and you know, the way that we internalized it and, and all those kinds of things. So that's been the focus of my life. And I've been doing this work in organizations, with community groups, with whoever is open to the information. You know, I tell people it's information that leads to transformation. Right. And we need to do some transformation work around this stuff. Right. Right. And I know that's a big part of your platform. It's all about the transformation. You use the word race literate quite a bit in your work. And I wanted you to explain to everyone, what does it mean to be race literate? So race literacy is the knowledge and awareness of the system of racism that we live under. The nation state that supports a racial caste system 
and the ways in which we understand race from its inception to the way that it affects us today. So becoming race literate is extremely important to this path. Right, right. Let me ask you, what do you think about your past has prepared you to do this work? You know, you've taken this work on. This is big work. And this is something that you can spend the entire span of your life really focused on. But I'm curious about what about your past? Like, can you take me back into your past? What prepared you to do this work and what brought you to this moment? Hmm. Yeah, so I actually was born where the Middle Passage began. I always tell this story because a lot of people don't realize that the Middle Passage actually started in 1509 when the first Africans were taken to work in the sugar plantations of what is now known as the Dominican Republic. It was actually called Quisqueya by the natives that lived there. And then it became La Española when Columbus claimed it for the Spanish crown and now is known as the Dominican Republic. But, you know, people were taken there to work in the sugar plantations way back then. So this is a hundred years before the Mayflower ever landed in the continental USA. So there was this huge, this hundred year span where Europeans found new ways of colonizing the world, right? And established uh, caste system and established, they institutionalized a lot of different things. And then that just kind of got transferred and passed on to the English and the French and the Dutch and all of those countries that were colonizing countries around the equator. So how I come to this work is, you know, I tell people that I look at race as both an insider and an outsider, Um, an outsider because I was born and lived the first 10 years of my life in the Dominican Republic, where there's a lot of colorism, Racism looks different, but there's a lot of racism there as well. And also as an insider, because when people look at me, they think that I'm African-American when I'm actually Afro-Latina. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, a lot of Spanish-speaking people say all kinds of racist things in front of me thinking that I don't speak Spanish. And when I respond in Spanish, they're always shocked. You know, I don't know why, but what that always tells me is they don't know their history. Right. Because most of the people that come from where they come from actually look like me (laughs) because of the way that those places were colonized and the enslaved population that was brought into the new world. Because out of the approximately 15 million people that were taken from the African continent, only about 400,000 were brought to the continental USA. Everybody else, the, the other millions, the, the few that survived, right? Like the ones that survived, about 6 million survived out of the 15 million. And those were taken to Central South America and the Caribbean. Mm. The other 400,000 were brought to the continental USA. So when people look at the Spanish-speaking community in this country, they think that the majority of the people that come from where they came from look like that they're lighter skin and straight hair. And so a lot of them are descendants from natives. But the reality is that there are a lot of people, part of the African diaspora in those countries. It's just that, and here again, is the ways that racism plays a role, right? So the consulate general, which are sent from the US to those countries are usually white males who were raised in segregation, who were, you know, and so the people that they laid out are, are usually the ones that look most like them. And, and no one ever talks about that. But I actually got my calling in and of itself when I was about 13 years old. We had been in the country for about three years, and that's when Dr. King died. 
And, you know, I remember going in the bathroom and, and crying my eyes out because I was so upset about it. And my father kept asking if I was okay. And I didn't even want him to know that I was crying. But but I, I, I was so upset over his death. But at some point, it's like I heard a voice that said, you're to continue the work. And I didn't know what that meant. But what I did know was that man just got killed for doing that. So there's no way in the world I'm ever going to do that. Right. <laughs> you know, like, I'm not doing that. Right. Right? That's and, <laughs> yeah. You know, so I resisted it for a long time, but I was doing diversity work like in the nineties, eighties and nineties. And I would always talk about race. And at some point I became aware of the fact that no one wanted to talk about race and that must be where the juice is. So that's what I went for. And so really, I wasn't even realizing it was the answering to my calling Mm. at that point in time. Like it took me years to realize, oh my God, that's, that must've been what that voice was talking about when I was 13. Like, we need you to do this work, right? So I always call it the voice of the ancestors, you know, because this is really the work of the ancestors, why some of us were sent here to do this work. I I believe that so much. I love the idea of this voice that spoke to you. At 13, you were able to hear this voice, you know? And I think that for many of us, we're spoken to, you -hmm. know, it's spoken to so often and and it goes right over our heads. And I'm impressed that a 13 year old heard the voice and understood, but I, I completely understand also the struggle with complying with that voice because it's kind of scary yeah not only that but first of all first of all hearing a voice you know what i mean it was like who's in the bathroom with me and and it was a little bathroom right i you know so i kind of like for years i ignored that right and then for decades because it was the first and only time that it was like this strange mystical weird thing right and so it was creepy and weird. I was just like, yeah. ah, that didn't have anything to do with me. You know? <laughs> it's just me in the small bathroom, but that wasn't about me. Exactly. You know, and it's funny because when I think back, I realized, wow, I didn't run out of the bathroom, which usually I would have because when I was little, I was afraid of ghosts. So, I, <laughs> so it just dawned on me. It's like, wait a minute, but I didn't run out of the bathroom. You know, I was famous for going into my parents' room running in the middle of the night, you know, and they're all cuddled up and, and I'm right in the middle. Like I wasn't, I wasn't on my mother's side of my, right in the middle, you know, those love you. They must be like, great. Here she comes. Right. Here she comes again. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's amazing. But you know, I think there's something about that voice that really, you might not run from it because there's a feeling that comes along with it that says, you know what, you're okay. This is something you need to know. I love that. You know, I was watching your TEDx, which I loved. I loved. Thank you. And there was one part in the video where you talk about oppression from the standpoint of white privilege, which I think not many people talk about. Not many people put those two things together. And I would love for you to say more about that. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that I discovered, you know, I, I read all the time, I do a lot of research. And my, my work is really based on science, technology, research, history, and storytelling. Mm. That's really the foundation of my work. So I'm always doing research. But with all of that work, you awaken to levels of self and other that you might not have had access to had you not devoted that level of time to it, right? So one of the things that I really struggled with, because for me, this is a spiritual journey. This is part of my spiritual journey. 
And so what I really struggled with was this idea that whites were oppressed. Because my thing was like, okay, yes, spirit, seriously, like, show me. Hello. <laughs> Doesn't compute, right? I mean, you know, when the world is fixed in your favor, how can you say that? Right. And what I realized, and, and I was so humbled by that, was that the reason that their oppression is not visible is because it's hidden behind privilege. Mm. And privilege is the payoff to mm. remain silent in the face of your brother's suffering. Wow. And I realized that was huge to anyone's personal and spiritual growth. Mm. People need to know that. Of course. Because one of the things around unconscious racial bias is that if you're not conscious, you don't know what you don't know. And so you're not necessarily aware of the various forms of oppression and the forms that oppression takes because we live in a system and we've been trained to, to look at certain things as success. Right. And as grandeur and well-being and and that certain people are to be worshipped kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, and so we grow up in a system that teaches that, you know, and a lot of us have parents that go, that's not true. My parents certainly did, you know, but that's not true of all parents, right? And of all people where you have this awareness that just because it's in a book doesn't mean it's real or right. it's true, right? And so, so we have these belief systems that have been formed out of the systems that we live in. And in our racialized system has ways of teaching people about who they are and who other is. Mm. And I don't care what side of the issue you're on, there's self and who you are and that identity, whatever that is that we've absorbed from the system we live in and who other is. And so we don't always see ourselves in the oppression. We don't always see ourselves as a perpetrator. And, and so there's this whole thing that happens with the issue of race where the whole idea around supremacy is innocence, immunity. You know, like there are all these things. And so, and so people look at individuals who are on that side mm -hmm. of the system as innocent you're innocent until proven guilty right that's it's that's what we've written in the law however if you're black or brown you're guilty and you have to prove your innocence yes so it's the same system but it serves people differently depending on where they are you know and so as a result of that whites literally are trained not to see their oppression and they're paid with trinkets with access and opportunity to keep their mouth shut in the face of another suffering and to not even see it not even see themselves as part of that when in reality when people become aware of that that's not where they want to hang right you know it's like I didn't know that.
Right, right. I didn't know that my silence was contributing at that level. And I didn't know that I was being paid to remain silent. And when people become aware of that, they look at themselves and at the world differently, which means that now they're trying to do things differently. Mm -hmm. And that's an important part of what we need to do. You know, the, the uh, old Einstein saying, and I say this all the time, is, and I'm paraphrasing, but basically you cannot solve the, your problems with the same mind that made it. Exactly. You can't solve the problem on the level of the problem. Completely understand that. It's so very true. And when it comes to race, we keep trying to solve it from the level of the problem. Yes. And it's like, we need a new mindset. And to access a new mindset, you need new information. Unbelievable. I, I mean, honestly, I can listen to you talk all day long. <laughs> I just, I love the way you phrase it. It's just the way you put it is so interesting. It's just like, it makes so much sense, but it, it has gone over people's head for so long. Mm. And to look at it this way, it's like, I can't believe that so many of us like just weren't seeing this. You know what I mean? It's just fascinating to me. There's so much simplicity to it that I'm just like, God, why haven't we really ingested this before really taking this in? I resisted that until I started to really look at it. And, and what happens to Phil is that we, we then experience a different level of compassion. Mm. I tell people, you know, I don't care how big a racist you are. Racism is not your fault, but it is your responsibility to heal it and transform it. Racism is something we inherited over 500 years. Mm -hmm. You know, the myth of racism, because there, there, there is no biology around races. There are no different races. There's one human race and we're right. all related and we're all African. I don't care what color skin you got, you're still African. You're great, 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 great. And I could just keep going with the greats. Right. Grandmama at some point was African, you know? Right. I mean, it is what it is, right? But without an awareness of that, people think that we are these separate pods, right? right? right. When in reality, we are one human family we are genetically related. So it isn't even like you could say, eh, ain't my family, you know, right, <laughs> because right, right. all you have to do is run the DNA. Because, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, I, so, love, I heard you say that in your TEDx. I love it. Everybody's cuz. <laughs> kind of yeah, you know, it's just really funny. So I do this healing racism program. It's a two-day intensive, right? And I was doing this particular program in Michigan. And it was mostly white males between the ages of 40 and, and retirement age 65. And in some of these organizations, they used to make them come to the seminar because they would do crazy stuff, right, in uh, their organization. So anyway, I remember I was coming out of a supermarket once after having done one of the two-day seminars. And I hear somebody going, cuz, cuz, I'm not thinking they're talking to me. Especially, I was the only black person in the parking lot. So and good. so I said, cuz, cuz, you know. I turned around and it's one of the guys that been to the seven. I that is, that is priceless. I love it. <laughs> you know, but you yeah, have to love so it because good. there's that recognition of family, you know, like, yeah. like he was seriously like, you know, <laughs> it was precious. It was just absolutely precious. Oh, I love that story. That's so good. I love it so much. <laughs> we should oh. run around calling each other cuz. Yeah, people get confused at first, but after a while they go, you're related? <laughs> so good. I love that so much. You know, all right, so we're going to go to break. But before we go to break, 
One of the things that I've heard you mention, I think you may have mentioned this in a TED Talk or I've seen in some of your literature, where you talk about the role of compassion in being race literate. And I think that's not something that gets talked about enough. I know that you are a big believer in that. So after break, I want to hear more about the role of compassion, because I'm sure there are people who are like, what, that has no role or no place in this work. And I disagree, but I want to hear your thoughts on that. So after break, we'll get back to that and we'll pick it up then. This week, I want to give a shout out to an awesome non-binary and queer-owned clothing company called Playout Apparel. They are a gender-equal social good enterprise that donates 20% of their profits to LGBTQ plus and BLM organizations. Check out playoutapparel.com and find ethically made, super comfortable underwear and loungewear in a variety of sizes. On Instagram, you can follow them at playoutnyc. Okay, welcome back, everyone. And so right before the break, we talked about, Milagros and I were talking about the role of compassion in becoming race literate. And I wanted to find out from you, Milagros, what role do you think compassion plays in that work? I think it plays a huge role because people don't know what they don't know. And we have expectations of people based on who we are, what we know, what we think, and what we believe. And that has nothing to do with them. And we know what we know from our experience, from the tribe that we belong to, right? Because mm-hmm. we've been divided into tribes, you know, even though we're one human family, the stories that we've heard, the kind of education that we have, and all of those things play a role in what we know. But there are people who don't know what they don't know. Mm-hmm. And those of us who know it, I remember there was a time when I would look at people like, what is wrong with them? Like, why can't they figure this out, right? And what I realized was, you know, there was a time that I didn't know this. Right. And to treat people badly because of their ignorance. Now, there, there is willful ignorance as well, okay? Mm-hmm. That's a different story. I've been doing this work for 35 years, and most of the people that I have encountered want to do the right thing. They don't know what to do. They don't think they're part of the problem because they're good people, right? I think when people get lost and what they don't understand is that racism is not about goodness, and it's not about badness. It's about conditioning Mm. that then causes behaviors that are bad. Okay, but it's but it's about conditioning. So you have to go back and clear the conditioning if you want the behavior to change. Right. Right. And so that's where the compassion piece comes in. It's the people don't know what they don't know. And people will act, react or interact out of what they do know. And so we have to create space. All of us for each other. Mm hmm. We just have to create space for each other. Otherwise, we're always going to be at war with one another, whether it's psychological war, emotional war, economic war. Like, it's, it's endless. Right. There's this great line in The Course of Miracles that says, the one who is saner of the two 
needs to take responsibility for the relationship. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and you know, people don't want to do that work. They're like, mm-hmm. I become insane. And now I got to do more work. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Now I got to take responsibility for my brothers and sisters. Ooh, I don't think so. <laughs> I'm all right. See you later. Bye. No, I, I definitely know there are people who would hear about like this idea of compassion and think, okay, are we letting these people off the hook? You have to make the distinction between that willful ignorance you mentioned mm-hmm. and somebody who really doesn't know. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and a lot of this journey is about being discerning. Oh, right. Oh my goodness. Yes. Because what ends up happening in abusive relationships, and that's what this is. It's an abusive relationship. Okay. What happens in abusive relationships is that the victim very often ends up carrying the shame of the perpetrator. And while the victim is carrying the shame of the perpetrator, the perpetrator is not doing the work that they need to heal and transform. They're not doing that work because you're doing it for them. Wow. So you have to learn to be discerning and figure out what's mine and what is it. And that's why I always tell people that racism is a problem for people of color. It is not the problem of people of color. We cannot solve racism. What we have to solve is our colorism, our Stockholm syndrome, the way that we internalize the dysfunction. Like that's our piece to solve. Mm-hmm. Whites have to solve the racism piece, which is the violence, all these things, which are left over. We call them sequelas, which is uh, scars mm-hmm. from European trauma prior to their even arriving in this country, which then gets passed on epigenetically for seven full generations. So we have all these generations that you know need healing, right? The healing hasn't happened. And so we need to become conscious of that and aware of the role that all these pieces play in the process of transformation. And that's why compassion is needed. And we're not even going to talk about forgiveness because that's another story. That's a heavy one. That's a big one for people because people do think that it's letting somebody else off the hook. Ain't got nothing to do with them. It doesn't. Forgiveness is about you. Exactly. It's about you setting yourself free from their dysfunction. Exactly right. They hear forgiveness and they go directly to, I'm letting this person off the hook. Mm-hmm. And they don't bring it back to themselves. Yeah. How are you going to free yourself of this? Mm-hmm. Right. It is a difficult yeah. one to grapple with. Yeah. You mentioned just quickly about epigenetics, and I want to talk about that a little bit. Can you speak to what that is and how that exists? Right. So what the research is telling us is that trauma gets passed on for seven full generations. And it's amazing. And what they find is that when people suffer trauma, there is a change that happens in the stress-related gene. And they find that that same change happens in the children of the person who's been traumatized. And their grandchildren and their great grandchildren, up to seven full generations. Interestingly enough, and this is another piece that we never talk about, is the fact that the brain doesn't know the difference between you hearing about the trauma, seeing someone else being traumatized, or you being traumatized yourself. So, What that means is anyone who causes somebody else's trauma has now put their own genetics in danger. Wow. Because you cannot have that experience 
without you yourself being compromised. And if you're compromised, you pass it on. You pass it on. So again, it's we are one human family, one human body, really, you know, all of us. And so often people feel like, especially if they're perpetrators, they feel like, oop, got away with it. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't being done to me. I was doing it to someone else. They don't realize that it was being done to you. You were doing it to you and your children and your grandchildren and your great, 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 great grandchildren. This is why I do this work with science and research and technology and storytelling. I use all of it because we need all of it to understand and to be able to connect the dots. Mm. So once you start to understand that, and, and that may be one of the ways to reach some of the people that cause trauma to others, you know, you can't do it without you yourself being compromised. Your body is compromised because now the trauma lives in your body too. Just like it lived in the body of the person that you traumatized. It doesn't get talked about enough. I feel like I was only starting to hear more about it in these times we're living in right now. And to think that you're carrying it around, to think that it's been passed down a lineage is just insane to think about it. Yeah. Right? No one's getting away with anything, right? Exactly. So, so there was this experiment that these scientists did, and it's called the cherry blossom experiment. And what they were doing was they were pumping cherry blossom oil into a cage with mice. And every time they did it, they would electrocute the mice. And they found that the second generation of mice acted more traumatized than the first generation. Because after a while, you didn't have to electrocute them anymore. All you had to do was pump cherry blossom oil and they would act traumatized. They would act out of the trauma, PTSD, right? And so they found the second generation acted more traumatized than the first. So I always tell people I have a theory about that. My theory is the first generation knew somebody's doing something to us. Something's happening here. Second generation has no context. Has no context because think about it. They don't have the history. Nobody's told them. Nobody told them the history of how their ancestor got traumatized. But all they know is I have this experience and I jump or I have nightmares about it. Or do you hear what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. So we did it with the mice, but think about the human beings. And I always remind people that there's this little line in the Bible that says the sins of the fathers shall be visited upon the sons, seven generations hence. We have known that if you traumatize one generation, you traumatize seven generations. We've known this. We put it in the Bible. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like somebody wrote about this because those are books that were written by families and passed down from generation to generation. And somebody wrote about that. It isn't just the trauma of racism. It's the trauma of wars, the trauma of famine, Mm -hmm. economic trauma. Somebody called me the race healer because he was saying, oh, you're here to heal a human race. Like that's your calling, right? Mm -hmm. And it is about healing the human race because we've all inherited the body of human trauma. The thing about it is once you become conscious and you start to see how you act, react, and interact with yourself and others, you start to recognize the trauma, how you're acting out of the trauma. And once you start to recognize that, you change your behaviors. And when you change your behavior, you change the dynamics of your life and the life of the people around you. 
And because we're connected, every time one person changes, it heals the entire race. Mm. So there's less and less and less that needs to be healed. And that's why we want to get more and more people into these conversations, into looking at race as something that you can actually heal from. Right. Right. How do you even begin to unlock that trauma? And what you just said was really helpful. So you're sitting with it and acknowledging it mm-hmm. and questioning yourself and watching your actions and watching your reactions. There's a lot of work that goes into unlocking all of that. Yeah. You know, and, and you have to be committed to it because that's a rough journey right there. Tell me about it. I've been at it for 35 years. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, but what it does is, is it takes you to a core of inner liberation where you can see the other as not other, but self in a different form. And, and when you see other as self in a different, in a different body, right? You, you can't abuse that body if you love yourself enough not to abuse yourself. Right. And so, so is this, back and forth relationship with self and other Mm. that eventually becomes, I see you, you know, like I see you, I see you as this essence of me. Mm. And I see you as a member of my family. And when I see you that way, I want you to have good schooling. I want you to do work that you love, that makes your heart sing. I want your heart to smile because I want my heart to smile. Yeah. I want to do what I love to do. You know, you just really realize it's like, oh, you're not that different from me. You just have had different experiences. Right, right. And wow. then we can open our hearts to do the one and only thing we're here for anyway, which is to love. Everything else, how we do it is superfluous, but we're here to love one another, to see each other, to, I mean, you know, I often think about our ancestors and how they're no longer in physical form. So there are things that physical form can do that they can no longer do. So while we are here in physical form, what will we do? to make it easier for the next generation mm. so that they can walk a path that is more aligned with their humanity, with their power, with right. their beauty, with their essence, you know? And, and that's why we're here, to take all the garbage out of what is in front of us, being able to love each other. Yeah, and I would say also to carry forth what the ancestors need for us to do. As mm-hmm. they are no longer in physical form, how do we carry on their work? How do we pick up the mantle and right. move that forward? That's what happened to you that day in the tiny bathroom when mm-hmm. the ghost spoke to you. <laughs> yeah, well, whatever it was, girl. Whatever it was, we wasn't a ghost. We know it wasn't a ghost. But when you got your marching orders on <laughs> when you were 13, you know, that was the answer saying, you know, I need your help to carry this forward. Like, I need you to do this work. And are you going to commit to that? The calling of our lives is generally that kind of thing. It is, are you going to pick up the mantle and take on this responsibility of what I've asked for you and move this entire human race forward? Are you going to do it? 
So I, I think it's incredible that you listened and did that. And one more thing, just going back to the trauma piece you mentioned, I'm curious, do you think that the trauma that we talked about unlocking is different in the ways it needs to be unlocked for a person of color as opposed to a white person? Different experiences. So is the unlocking of the trauma different? The unlocking of the trauma isn't necessarily different, but the way in which you approach it is different because what's been internalized is different. So some people have internalized unconscious supremacy. Some people have internalized unconscious colonization. Some people have internalized unconscious enslavement. And then those things show up in their lives in different ways and in different forms. The, uh, what the unlocking is, is the becoming aware. Mm-hmm. And everybody needs to become aware. Mm-hmm. So in that respect, everybody kind of needs the same medicine, right? But it needs to take different forms for right. different groups and, and different people, you know? Yeah, that makes total sense. We're going to close a little bit, but I want to ask you, looking back in your life, you've been doing this work for 35 years. Thinking back to when you were that 13-year-old, is there something from this place in your life now that you would tell that 13-year-old? Some words of assurance or some advice that you would give to that 13-year-old? You know, I don't know that I would give her advice because the only thing that comes to mind is you're going to have to be really courageous. And that could be a really scary thing to say to a 13 year old. Yes. It okay. Is. <laughs> yes, it's. It, you know, because there was a refusal in me to do the work. Right. And there was a reason for that because somewhere I knew that it's like, this ain't going to be easy. That's not an easy path. You're asking me to walk here. Okay. And so what I would say to that 13 year old is you're a badass. <laughs> I love it. Say to that 13 year old, you are courageous. You know, my father used to say, you better know where you stand because sometimes you may have to stand alone. Mm. And for the longest time, when it comes to this issue, I've had to stand alone Mm. because, you know, I've had the spiritual people tell me they're too spiritual to be racist. And it's like, what are you going to do with that? Yes, I wasn't really looking at it the way you were. You know, it was just really funny. But, you know, just the realization that sometimes, we have to give ourselves time to be ready. So I had to give myself time to be ready to deliver the message. And then I had to be patient to give people the opportunity to hear the message. Mm. And so I think what I would tell that 13-year-old is that this is going to take time. Buckle up. Exactly. This is going to take time, little girl. So uh, I always joke that when we were all little angels in heaven before we were born, you know, and people were coming and they were showing up with things that they needed and wanted, right? And so the line with patience was like this long line. And people had like a couple buckets. Some people had like four buckets that they brought with them to be filled with patience. I showed up with a thimble. And I said, see what you can do with this. (laughs) And then I get tasked with doing doing racism work. I'm like, what were you thinking? You need to bring your buckets and you forgot. (laughs) I didn't want a bucket. (laughs) I want it now. (laughs) Oh, man. So that must be definitely a challenge. (laughs) Ah, mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) 
Well, I love this conversation. I love what you do. For people listening, I think they should go look at your TEDx talk. I was so struck by when I watched that TEDx talk by not just how sucked in the audience were. They were enthralled. They were there. But also your demeanor, which I noted. I remember thinking to myself, your demeanor was so amazing. There's such a calm, gentle warmness that you were exuding that I was just like, this is not the way we're used to hearing someone talk about race. Mm. And I watched those people just drink it up. They were drinking up. They were like, they wish they had buckets. <laughs> <laughs> they were there with you. And I was just like, it was so beautiful to see because race is such a huge topic. It's so complicated mm -hmm. and it has so many faces. And the way you came with so much confidence and just being so sure and yet so loving was just beautiful. So I really want to encourage anyone listening to please check out Milagros's uh, TEDx talk. It was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you oh, so much. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. Listen, before you go, tell everyone where they can find you. I want them to know exactly where they can find you. Okay. So they can go to milagrosphillips.com and that's M-I-L-A-G-R-O-S-P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S.com. Um, every Monday I do a lunch and learn mm. that people can join. And I mean, I'm so humbled by what people are saying about how this is changing their lives and the way that they look at race and all that. So it, that happens every Monday at noon and you can get that information on my website. There's information there. But I also want to say that you and I have more in common than you realize. So I think I told you I studied fashion. Yes. And actually for a few years when my children were little, I used to do image consulting and wardrobe planning and, you know, go in people's closets and just like, you know, the whole thing. So it was really fun. And I, I still love fashion. That's still one of my loves. I mean, all the arts are, I'm just completely enamored with the arts period. And, and the arts have informed the way that I do this work. Really? Place, oh my gosh. Yeah. Every time I hear that they're cutting the arts out of the schools, I'm like, because, oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I paint as well, but I love the arts because we now have research that tells us that the arts are imperative to people's leadership abilities. Mm. They seem to enhance people's leadership abilities. And so we have all these young people that aren't getting access to music and art and, you know, all these wonderful things that can make a difference in their lives in more ways than one. But yeah, no, fashion, that's my thing. You know, before we go, tell us a little bit about what role has fashion played in your life? Well, that's more of a race story. <laughs> when I was graduating from FIT, all of my white classmates were getting jobs and I could not land a job. Mm -hmm. And it was so interesting because I was the one that had won a bunch of awards while I was in school and nobody would hire me. So I went into sales <laughs> because it was the only thing that was available to me. And I had to make a living. But for a long time, I was really hurt and angry about that because, I, I mean, I just have always loved the arts. And every time I reached into whatever, whether it was being a singer and having my Me Too movement with my manager and I shut my voice, you know, trying to get into Seventh Avenue to work there and nobody would hire me. Because not only am I a black woman, but I'm also Latina. So the first thing they see is my name, right? Which wasn't until a few years ago that I was like, 
there it is. It's my name. People get that first. And they're like, oh, we don't know who she is. And she probably can't speak English anyway. Whatever it is that goes through people's minds. It's been a journey, but I still love fashion. Right now, the race thing is taking up all of my I bet. Yeah, I don't bet you have no time for designing anything at this point. I'm Your dance part is full right now. Right? You know, it's like <laughs> fashion. Yeah, here it is. Like, just put something on, right? <laughs> well, I hope you get back to that. But I am so thrilled that you are doing the race thing because obviously there is such a need for what you do. And as I mentioned before, people are talking about race from so many aspects. And I think that your lane, I really love your lane of it. I love how you come by your lane and I'm very much into it. Mm-hmm. So if you feel so inclined, definitely visit one of Milagros's Lunch and Learns. Just learn more about what she does. She's got some books out. Watch the TEDx, go to the website, sign up, get on the mailing list. Just, you know, please follow what she's doing because it's just incredible. Thank you. As you can see, I'm a fan. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, you have one here, my friend. You have- <laughs> Thank you so much. This has Thanks. been amazing, Phil. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you so much. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much for being on with us today. And for everyone, please stay tuned. More wonderful things coming your way. Just check us out in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Transition of Style. If you like what you hear, please remember to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Visit us on our show page at transitionofstyle.com for more information and follow us to share in the conversation on Instagram at transitionofstyle.